podcast from Glasgow International, bringing together artists and curators in creative conversation. Find us at glasgowinternational.org. My name is Stevie Knaus. I am an interdisciplinary artist. I live in New York. My work is mostly about attention, but it's also about disclosure and also desire. I work in performance, sound, and collaboratively, and these studies kind of inform a larger practice to ask questions about attention. And I'm Graham Burnett, and uh, I'm based in New York City. I think a lot about attention, and I teach, and I make stuff. Attention is the theme of this year's Glasgow International Festival. One of its first events is a screening of 12 Theses on Attention, a film inspired by a document of the same name drafted by the Friends of Attention, whose members include Stevie Knauss and Graham Burnett. The Friends of Attention, in a formal sense, have their origin in the wake of the 2018 Sao Paulo Biennial. And Stevie and uh, a group of her friends and a group of my friends, all of whom by that point had been collaborating together for quite some time, were down in Sao Paulo in connection with a week of programming for that biennial. And that biennial, like the GI, was themed around questions of attention. It was curated by Gabriel Perez Barrero, who's a friend of um, both of ours. And Gabriel had asked me and a mutual friend, Steffi Hessler, to put together a week of programming around attentional practices. So... There were maybe 50 artists, academics, uh, writers, activists who came from all over to be part of that week of programming. I'm not sure that I was present during the main kind of conversation that catalyzed it, but I definitely was there. I was present in the political moment in Brazil that kind of contextualize the experience. But basically, it was right after Bolsonaro had taken over. And we were in the middle of this biennial talking about attention. And there was just a sense of urgency and a sense of drive that kind of motivated a new way of thinking about attention. And I was interested in a lot of those questions kind of before, but it kind of hit our community in a way that was just right for generating organization, I would say. Just exactly right. I mean, so this group of folks who Steffi and I had invited down, many of them had one or another kind of connection. But I don't think that the kind of urgency of the political questions had ever been thrust to the fore for us quite like it was at that final session of the Practices of Attention Gathering, in part because there were a group of Brazilian attendees who sort of stood up toward the end of the event and said, you know, this has been interesting and we've been thinking a lot about the role of attention in forming our aesthetic relation with art objects and so forth, except it's not even clear we're going to have a biennial in another two years. And they challenged us to up our game and think a little more concretely about the political implications of attention in the 21st century. So out of that event in the fall of 2018, we doubled down, catalyzed a group that would call itself 
the Friends of Attention, a very loose coalition, and planned an event for the summer of 2019 where we would gather for a week and think explicitly about attention in relation to questions of politics and subjectivity. We really entered a new phase of things once we started to kind of organize. And this way of organizing was also new. This was a new form of gathering for all of us because it was sort of a mix between a residency, a reckoning. Yeah, we weren't really sure what it was going to be, but we knew that we needed to figure out a new sense of togetherness in order to confront some of these questions really deliberately and really seriously. And we needed to kind of comb through in a way that we would as, as rigorously as we would with our own work and to kind of do it with each other. So we gathered for this very multifaceted event just to kind of give space for whatever would spring up after putting all of these political questions on the table. And we, what we ended up doing after talking through a lot of these questions, we like put together some readings and collectively authored two documents, the 12 theses on attention and the manifesto for the freedom of attention. And those are kind of like <laughs> founding thoughts from that moment, but both documents, we think of them as open source, unfinished, collective works that will be an ongoing part of the conversation and our work. We were inspired a little bit by previous moments in which less manifestos than statements or declarations gave shape to a kind of moment of political solidarity and aesthetic commitment. And uh, it was in that context that the 12 theses were originally drafted, this set of sort of somewhere between kind of poetry and theory propositions about the place of attention in a life well-lived with others and with oneself. One, the astonishing reality of things and persons. This is the object of pure attention. Two, True attention does the work of bringing forth. It is the aperture through which the latency of things and persons becomes present. Mere attention, ordinary attentiveness, is useful, standing in relation to the world like the opening, closing, entering, and exiting of the sensible doors in a well-maintained house. But unmixed attention pure attention to what cannot be used, to what no one already wants, to what promises no knowledge or gain, does not require doors, because it walks through walls. Three, this true attention given to objects unerringly reveals the presence of others. Stevie, don't you think that what we were aiming for was really just having a kind of document that could launch conversation that would um, get people thinking about this stuff and i take the films and the book that stevie's working on in connection with all this all to be outgrowths of that desire to create a kind of conversation yeah i think that's 
That's right. We wanted to create something that would ask some of the sort of essential questions of politics, aesthetics, and attention. Something that we could return to and re-articulate and ask at and reform over and over again in a diversity of ways, as, as many as possible, with the idea that, yeah, it could create an open conversation that could be revisited and re-articulated. Four. True attention allows potentialities latent in human relations and encounters, often immediately stifled by the weight of the everyday and by the hegemony of what is agreed to exist and to require attention, to flower and to flourish. It nourishes the implicit forms of being together that are emergent within human interaction and which are constantly interrupted. Five. An attentional path is the trace left by a free mind. To submit to the attentional path of another, to retrace it, is a form of attention. Retracing the attentional path of a free mind is one of the keenest pleasures we can take in each other and in the world. In a very concrete way, when the pandemic hit in February, March of last year, and we were all newly severed from each other by lockdown and the forms of isolation that were so surprising and disruptive at that moment. The friends actually, very early on, April, you know, began to meet by Zoom weekly between 35 and upwards of 60 folks in 10 countries uh, for these hour and 20 minute gatherings on Fridays all the way from April into the summer. And those were quite formally little attentional occasions. They usually began with some brief uh, attentional exercise, like a sort of contemplative or meditative moment. And then they often talked about questions of academic or artistic interest And so I think for me and I think for others, those gatherings were really special across that uh, period. And we've continued to meet. We we moved from weekly to monthly last fall. But that's been a way in which I think the commitments that are reflected in the 12th Thesis have continued to be activated by the community. Yeah, I feel like you're really good at um, thinking of what is concretely coming out of this. It's so, for me, I'm just like, oh, like this is an ethical document. And sometimes it's so hard to like bridge how politics and ethics manifest into action now. One of our goals is actually to be active and to figure out what political action means when it comes to these questions and what that even looks like. And so a lot of that stuff is in a very sort of experimental phase and partially just means like talking about the questions, but we do talk about them consistently. And that's like part of the ongoing work is just like questioning, 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 and taking it really seriously. And the only other thing I'll add to that is that the 12 Theses just does an amazing job at articulating what we're up against and the pandemic just so made some like a lot of these experiences with our devices and technology and advertising and just feeling closed in and alienated from the world all of those things this 
document kind of addresses to some degree. And I felt each day that kind of went by that I felt these things that felt like private problems, but were actually just like totally public, like a public phenomenon (laughs) that I sort of felt like I was internalizing. I was like, oh, that actually is what this is about and addresses is like that sense of alienation that is experienced collectively. Six, in this sense, we must recognize a dialectic of attentional freedom. True attention consists in the ability to submit one's attention to the attentional path traced by another. The absence of freedom of attention may thus feel like freedom, endless solicitation, and freedom of attention may feel like unfreedom, deliberate submission. Seven. This dialectic has been deliberately manipulated by market structures and technologies to the point that we are increasingly incapable of true attention. Our attention has never been more free or more continuously entrapped. Our attentional environments are thus catastrophic. True attention is fundamentally endangered. Eight. Escape from our attentional nightmare will not unfold in a singular event. The exercise of a truer attention requires the carving out of spaces in the world where it can survive and thrive. New environments. This might manifest literally through the creation of spaces that facilitate new ways of gathering. But it also requires that we strengthen the relationship between our inner lives and our outer lives sharing our individual sensory experiences with others is a means of reconciling a world that is otherwise broken a world that is in which our ability to think for ourselves and to desire on our own terms is constantly threatened from my perspective i think we need a kind of sea change rethinking There's lots of debates around what the role of museums as kinds of cathedrals of culture ought to be in a shifting social and cultural climate. My perspective, my view, my hope, my prayer is that those institutions can refashion themselves as, in a sense, secular cathedrals for attention. That's what they need to be. We no longer need them to teach us the lineage of the greatness of the European Renaissance. That's that's not their primary focus any longer. But there's an urgent need for spaces in which the capacity to sustain an engaged attention is encouraged, nurtured. Because I would argue that the ability to form and maintain attention is at the heart of what we mean by education. It's what it means to become a human being, is to be able to pay attention to what you want to pay attention to and not to what someone has entailed you to for their own purposes. So that form of true freedom of attention is essential to personhood, essential to our lives together in community. And it's significantly, as the theses suggest, imperiled by the revolutionary intensification of attention capture 
Nine. Sanctuaries of this sort, for true attention, already exist. They are among us now. But they are endangered, and thus many are in hiding, operating in self-sustaining, inclusive, generous, and fugitive forms. These sanctuaries can be found, but it takes an effort of attention to find them. And this seeking is also attention's effort to heal itself. This attention which seeks often takes the form of an intense and near devotional expectation and anticipation that refuses to know what it expects and anticipates. 10. What is needed is an ethics of attention. This is akin to a practical mysticism. Practical mysticism is not impractical. It is no more and no less than the effort to draw closer to the astonishing reality of things through those forms of pure attention that are unmixed with evaluations of utility and judgment and free from the deforming grasp of a seizing hand or eye or mind. Especially during lockdown, I felt like finding sanctuaries was imperative in any ways that I possibly could. It has a psychological effect. It has an effect on my friendships. It has an effect on my art practice. It has an effect on my politics. It's just one of those things that immerses itself in my ethics in a, in a way that I find to be really beautiful and it becomes a, a, a touchstone that's, that becomes really grounding. Forming sanctuaries, like really believing in ideas about like love and friendship and the way that they come into contact with politics, that has a very real manifestation, a real and concrete manifestation in my daily life, for sure. It's important to say that, you know, our group is just part of a larger national and international set of conversations taking place around questions of personhood and digital platforms and the entrapping of our attention for commercial purposes. It's not like we think we're the only group working on this, but we have our, uh, our kind of distinctive mood in which we go after these problems. I, I think we're also interested in... Um just speaking from a private level and these questions are super multifaceted like we're always interested in what's the what's the conversation when it's private what is it when it's public what is it when it's social how do these things all intermix under these different architectures and configurations and i can also say that artistically i often think of the politics of attention as central to a practice of making because it's a practice of attention. It's practicing attending to an idea or attending to a history um, or concept. You could do worse than to define artworks as kind of reified requests for attention. At a moment like ours, where most of the most powerful technologies are currently being directed to the business of getting as many people as possible to look over here and stay looking over there for as long as possible. We need all the help we can get to hold space for forms of attention that resist 
financialization. That's ultimately, I think, what's really at stake for the Friends of Attention. That's the core project. And all the draftiness and the slightly mystical language and the feeling around and the uh, holding hands, we need everything we can bring to that project because so much hangs on that right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, that it is, in a sense, on that that our politics, as well as our kind of existential reality hangs. If the only accounting we can offer for attention is a thing that can be made into money by the forces of consumer capitalism, we will be entirely assimilated without remainder to a transactional ecology. And that is pretty bleak. And that is happening, I would argue. Mm -hmm. And with that, in times of crises, if we're so sort of anesthetized and overstimulated to a point where we are absolutely like inundated with images and information, if we, if we can't receive and, um, and observe and sense with clarity, how can we possibly understand how to orient ourselves and organize against it? or even desire for a better reality. We, if we can't, if we don't even have the space to desire or dream or the, or the quiet to, to dream. Yeah. I just think that's such a powerful way of putting it. And it takes us back to the challenge of Sao Paulo in a lot of ways at the heart of the attentional practices that were being deployed at that biennial was a sense of durational openness while standing with others before a work of art, which seems like a nice idea. But it's also the case that if a group of Brazilians who are facing what feels increasingly like an autarkic, anti-democratic government come into the room while you're doing that, they can easily say, as some of them did, wait a second, we're having a political crisis here, and you want us to practice standing still quietly with a group of our friends in front of a painting? This is the most regressive, the most reactionary, the the most politically inert biennial project we've ever seen. And that definitely put a few of us back on our heels, But then, by the same token, I think the answer that can be offered is very much the answer that Stevie just gave, which is, if our capacity to stand together and share a vision has been sufficiently compromised, then it doesn't really matter what slogans we paint on the wall or under what banners we march. Our ability to achieve meaningful political solidarity will have been entirely undermined. And so it's in that space that I think we would try to argue, as the friends do, that a certain kind of attentional commitment is a precondition of a shared world, that language of world-making that gets invoked in the penultimate thesis. Eleven. True attention takes the unlivable and makes it livable. 
It is a lung that replenishes the air it breathes. If suddenly you feel that you can live and breathe in the place where you are, you or someone around you has committed, enacted, or bestowed attention. This is our work. 12. This is the work of freedom and understanding. It is a work, through attention, of world-building. This work is fundamentally political. I have an intense fear of brain rot. And when I say that, I really just mean having my ability to read and my ability to experience quietude and my just general sense of having a clear mind, a clear, attentive mind. I think about attention all the time and how to sharpen it. And even I still you know, fall into the infinite scroll all the time, just as everyone does, and these sort of addictive behaviors that are are easy to fall into. And so I'm interested in the history of technology in the sense that technology has moved under capitalism in such a singular and pointed direction. And so for me, looking to the past is a way of understanding before a predominant technology took over, what did it look like right before that? And how were people dealing? To understand like, what would be another way of doing this? And I find that a really like liberating. It's not romanticizing the past, it's just asking like, what if something else had happened? So just picking up on those threads that have unraveled in history. Yeah, that makes me super excited to hear you say, Stevie, it's so smart. It's so right on. You know, you'll sometimes hear people who know some history throw out that sort of, well, people thought the world was coming to an end when the telephone was invented and people thought that train travel was going to, you know, permanently transform the human person. You know, my own view is that that it would be very unsound to use that false historical thinking to sort of reduce our anxiety. In the first place, each of those technological developments I just alluded to really did substantially change the conditions of human personhood and forms of sociability. So the chicken littles in each case had some things on their mind that were not absurd. And second, there are just real differences in scale, totally different scale, and I think that that's just a kind of empirical positive fact. In terms of the Friends of Attention, our stance is not anti-technology. Some of us are Luddites or err toward that um, sensibility, but it's certainly not our platform. I think more what we are advocating for, or I can speak for myself here, which is that technology and the way we use it is really singular. It's also under really proprietary platforms. So it means that the ways in which we use technology are dictated by really specific powers and people who are in charge of creating these architectures. Who want to make 
money. Exactly. And from my perspective, I would like to use an internet that is a lot more democratic. And uh, the internet at this point is a place of severing. And the 12 Theses references attentional sanctuaries. I think I am interested in an internet that has more sanctuaries, has more places to be surprised, has more places to just come upon, get lost. The experience of the internet currently is just so far away from that. And the closest thing I have to it is just is the early internet. There were some spaces for that before we kind of like figured out how to streamline it and own it. I think that, uh, you know, what Stevie said about the importance of thinking in terms of attentional sanctuaries just can't be overemphasized. So when we drafted the uh, 12 theses, what we set out to do was create some situations where they could be discussed and where they could serve as the springboard to conversations like the one we're having. So the friends are very fortunate to have a number of very talented filmmakers involved. And uh, Lane Stroud, who's a Los Angeles-based filmmaker, and uh, Alyssa Lowe, who's based here in New York City, agreed to take on the project of kind of curating a set of short films, one each for each of the 12 theses. And uh, they gathered a sort of atelier of awesome young filmmakers. And those folks put together this series of shorts, which kind of activate the 12 theses in different ways. And it's that that we'll be screening on the opening day of the GI. Right now, Graham and I are working to then take some stills from the 12 theses film and place them in a layout that kind of speaks to um, the form of the of the 12 theses as a written document and then pairing it with the visuals of the film to make a book version that will be distributed by Princeton University Press. Out next spring. Out next, Out next spring, spring, hopefully, being the catalog for the spring of next year. Stevie Knaus and Graham Burnett you can find out more about the 12th Theses on Attention event at glasgowinternational.org. Encounters was produced by Lindsay Moyes for Glasgow International, supported by the Scottish Government's Expo Fund and Arts Fund. Thank you for listening. Thank you.